Well, chapter 18, let me think of Matthew. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now and they have Bibles. And we'd sure like to get one into your hands so that you can not only hear the word of God, but also be able to follow along with your own eyes. And so the Lord's going to work on two gates and getting his eternal truth into your life. Just get their attention and they'll get one into your hands. On Sunday morning, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. We find ourselves now well on our way in, in the account related to his uh, death upon the cross for our sins. John's Gospel, chapter 18, verse 28. And then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium where it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. And Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and they said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. And then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. And therefore the Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. And then Pilate entered the praetorium again called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate said, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I came, have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews, and he said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word once again this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to acknowledge you behind it, to be able to ask your Holy Spirit to give us a revelation and an application to your word into our individual lives here this morning, a life to your word that we would never otherwise know apart from his activity. And we just surrender ourselves to you this morning, our minds, our hearts, Lord, our bodies, our spirits to you. And we ask that you would take this word and that you would fashion every portion of our lives, Lord, in exactly the measure that they are intended to be fashioned by this portion of Scripture in your holy book, Lord. Thank you for the privilege of being able to study it this morning. Thank you for the added privilege of being able to do it together. And thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to do it in communion and fellowship with you, the true and the living God. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. 
On the morning of Jesus's crucifixion, he endured two trials, one religious and one secular. And we've already examined the religious trial that he endured on the morning of his crucifixion at the hands of Annas and then at the hands of his son-in-law, the high priest Caiaphas, as well as the entire religious ruling body known as the Sanhedrin. And this morning we want to begin to examine the secular trial conducted by the Roman governor of Judea in that day, a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. The Jewish religious leaders have already falsely declared Jesus to be guilty of blasphemy for declaring himself to be the son of God and thus divine himself and equal with God. They considered that to be a claim that was worthy of death, but they've got a problem. The problem that they have is because Israel was under Roman occupation, they had no legal authority to execute anyone. Rome was fairly liberal in the Roman Empire and its governing of the various nations that it had uh, dominated and it had conquered and the provinces that it had done so. They were in many respects amazingly lenient in kind of the self-determination that they allowed many parts of their empire to have. But the one area that they never delegated to anyone else was the right of capital punishment. They held to themselves, to their Roman system of government and core system, they held to themselves the right of capital punishment. And thus the Jewish religious leaders realized that in order to get rid of Jesus by death, which is what they were plotting, they needed to involve the Roman governor Pontius Pilate to secure Jesus' death. Now, all of this is very, very fascinating in a prophetic sense, because if Jesus had come into the world, born into the world as the savior of the world, as the Messiah of the world, at a time in human history in which the Jews were self-determining, they were their own nation, they were not in subjection to a greater empire, the Roman Empire, then they would have possessed the right of capital punishment just as they pleased. And by this time, the Jewish religious leaders would have promptly taken Jesus out and stoned him to death because that was their method of uh, execution of, of capital crimes according to the law of Moses. But the fascinating thing about those Old Testament scriptures is that they prophesied that when the Messiah came into the world, that he would be rejected by his own, by the Jews. And the rejection would be so severe that he would die at their hands, but that he would not die by virtue of stoning, but that he would die as a result of crucifixion. God was prophesying that the Messiah will be introduced into human history in that part of the world at a time in human history when the method of capital punishment is crucifixion, just as it was under Rome. David, a thousand years before Jesus was born, wrote on behalf of the the Messiah in Psalm 22, describing the 
that the Messiah would die a death that involved the piercing of his hands and of his feet, a perfect description of crucifixion. David wrote in speaking of the Messiah, they pierced my hands and my feet. Zechariah, the great Old Testament prophet in the book that is named after him and the prophecies God gave to him in chapter 12, verse 10, he declared concerning the Messiah, and then they will look on me whom they have pierced. And so here is Jesus introduced as the savior of the world, introduced into human history at a time where crucifixion was the means of capital punishment. And it's fascinating because here are these Jewish religious leaders. They are calling for Jesus's crucifixion and unknowingly fulfilling prophecies that even more fully confirmed him to be the promised Jewish Messiah. Now, very early in that same morning, they led Jesus following the religious trial to the praetorium in Jerusalem. And the praetorium was simply the home of the Roman governor in Judea. Now, normally the Roman governor of Judea, at this time, Pontius Pilate, he spent as little time in Jerusalem as he had to. Jerusalem was a religious town. It was filled with Jews. The Romans had no great love for the Jews, and the Jews had no great love for the Romans. And so Herod the Great built a great Roman city called Caesarea right on the seashore of the Mediterranean Sea in Israel and built this great Roman city. It was a bit of Rome away from Rome. And so these governors would spend the bulk of their year over in Caesarea enjoying all of the pleasures and all of the sin of Rome there in Caesarea. But at the times of the major religious feasts of the Jews, they would be forced to go into Jerusalem for the sake of keeping peace there. During the great feast, and all of this is happening at the time of the Feast of Passover, not only was Jerusalem fully populated and populated with Jews, but you had Jewish pilgrims coming from all around the world to celebrate the feasts. Josephus estimates that well over a million Jews would descend on top of the native population upon Jerusalem in order to worship the Lord as a part of the feast. And in coming now to celebrate the Passover, which was a celebration of God's deliverance of the children of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. At the same time, they look all around Jerusalem and they recognize that they are in bondage to Rome. It was a very flammable situation for some zealots to rise up and say, what in the world are we doing celebrating the Passover and putting up with this Roman occupation and then lead all of Jerusalem in an insurrection or revolt against Rome? And so what the governor would do is he would go himself to Jerusalem, bring a much heftier uh, military force into the city and make that presence known to the Jewish population so that it would deter them from revolt and would and so that he could then, if a revolt did break out, he could manage it personally. Now, here you have in, in, in so 
Pilate here at this time coming into Jerusalem, probably uh, his residence during these great feasts because of need to be near the military and all of this was probably the fortress of Antonia, which was located in the northwest end of the temple area. The religious leaders were told in verse 28 brought Jesus to the praetorium and to this Jewish residence of the Roman governor, but they wouldn't enter in. And they wouldn't enter in out of a concern for their ceremonial uh, cleanliness. In order for a Jew to partake of the uh, Passover feast, it was important that for a period of time prior to the feast that they not come into contact with any leaven, according to the law of Moses. So they would not go into even Herod or even into Pilate's palace there because they knew that that palace wouldn't be kosher. They'd be making bread with leaven. If they entered in, they would then become defiled by that leaven. The law of Moses said that it would then require a seven day period of ceremonial cleansing before they could be then clean to involve themselves in the worship of the Lord. And by then, the Passover would be long past. And so they they don't want to enter into uh, Pilate's house because they don't want to be made ceremonially unclean. And here you have really, I mean, one of the greatest examples of of hypocrisy and religious self-deception to be found in all of the Bible. It is amazing. And I exhort myself because I have it in me and you do, too. But it is amazing what the religious mind can work itself through. What it will look at is a major and then look at is a minor. And here they are concerned about becoming ceremonially unclean, disqualifying them from worshiping the God of Israel at the time of Passover when they are the ver- that very morning they are plotting the death of the very Son of God that they're intending to worship. Crazy. This is what is known as straining at a gnat while swallowing a camel, Jesus said. Now notice the exchange between the religious leaders of the Jews and Pilate in verses 29 to 32. Pilate gives in to their concern about their ceremonial cleanliness, and he came out to them. It's very early in the morning, probably no later than 6 a.m. Pilate wasn't accustomed as the governor to just get up at 4 a.m. in the morning and do some business in the odds that the Jewish religious leaders might show up at his door at 6 a.m. and knock on the door. He's ready for them. He's waiting for them. And it seems that his availability to them so early uh, indicates that he was forewarned probably the evening before by the Sanhedrin that they were about to apprehend a dangerous uh, criminal and prisoner that they were going to then bring to him the next morning so he could uh, give them the final sentence. And so very naturally, very logically, Pilate asked the religious leaders to state 
their accusation of wrongdoing against Jesus. You've brought him to me. You've got me up this early in the morning. You tell me that you've got a dangerous criminal here. What exactly is the crime that you're charging him with having committed? They have no charge, but they know bluster. And so in verse 30, they say, if he were not an evildoer, we wouldn't have delivered him up to you. His demand for a charge against Jesus apparently is an affront to their pride and reminds them that they are not in charge of the legal proceedings in in the Roman Empire. And so they wanted Pilate to confirm their death sentence upon Jesus without a trial, fair or otherwise. And so when Pilate starts to ask questions of them, now he's complicating things by wanting to get more informed and more involved than, than they hoped that he would. And they're at a loss to bring a charge against Jesus because they knew they didn't have a charge against Jesus that would stand up in a Roman court of law or anything that Rome would be interested in, and they knew it. The only crime that they were accusing Jesus of was his claim to be the Son of God and thus his claim to be divine. That was a religious issue. They knew that if they brought that as the charge that they wanted Jesus to be executed for before Pilate, Pilate would laugh in their face and run them off of his property. That had nothing to do with with Rome. And so they imply that Pilate should just trust them. Just trust us. We would never hand anyone over to you who wasn't actually a criminal. And Pilate's response to them in verse 31, you notice, he said, judge him according to your own law. In other words, if you do not want me to judge this man in accordance with Roman law and its procedures, if he has not violated any Roman law, but he's violated some religious law of your own, then quit wasting my time and go judge him yourself. Pilate is clearly, uh, these people are not on good terms with one another. And Pilate is clearly very reluctant to get drawn into whatever these people are about, especially in, at as volatile a time as the Jewish Passover in in Jerusalem. And so their response then to him in verse end of verse 31, and it's quite illuminating. They then blurt out to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Oh, so that's what we're dealing with here. We're not dealing with justice. This is about his death. And they were, in essence, communicating, we have found him guilty and we want him to be put to death, but we don't have the right of capital punishment under Roman rule. And so we ask that you would do us the favor of crucifying him and sentencing him to death. Pilate now has a grasp of what he's in the middle of. He's not a stupid man. He's a very shrewd politician. Very bright man, uh, morally no good, but sharp in other ways. And so Pilate turns on his heel from the Jewish religious leaders. And then in verses 33 through 38, he goes into the praetorium where Jesus has been taken. And now he begins 
the secular trial of Jesus, the Roman trial of Jesus. And Pilate asked Jesus in verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? And it's very important to realize that the word you in the original language is emphatic. It is, are you the king of the Jews? Now, in part, what he's doing is what he is appointed to do. And that is, it's his responsibility to ask the accused to elaborate on the validity of the charges that have been brought against him. The charges that you claim to be the king of the Jews. And so is this a true charge? But I don't think that it is without some amusement on Pilate's part. As he walks into that room and there stands Jesus. And he looks over at him and declares, are you the king of the Jews? Nothing outward about Jesus suggested royalty. Nothing about him suggested that he was a revolutionary. You picture Jesus in that room in the praetorium. And here is this building that's been built by Rome. All of the stone, all of the plaster, all of the pillars, all of the marble, all of the beauty. Here are the soldiers standing all in their place and it's all purple and it's red and it's gold and it's majestic and it's law and order and a place for everything and everything in its place. And the entire environment of all of these places where anyone was tried by Rome was designed to intimidate any prisoner that would find himself having to face Roman law. And in the context of all of this beauty and all of this intimidating grandeur, there stands Jesus. All alone. Not a disciple left. Not one with him. Not one follower with him. His clothes are simple. Covered now with his own blood. He's been up all night long. He's already been savagely beaten by the religious leaders. He's covered now with the spit of these same religious leaders. And as the Roman governor, Pilate certainly didn't feel that his power was threatened in any way by what he saw in Jesus. But the trial is just beginning for Pilate. And Pilate answers, Jesus answers Pilate's question in verse 34. And I think that the answer that Pilate received from Jesus was probably very different from what he expected. It came in the form of a question. Are you speaking for yourself on this or did others tell you this about me as the king of the Jews? Jesus asked Pilate whether he was asking the question for the Jews. This is a purely legal proceeding. Or do you have an interest yourself? And the answer to that question. And of course, this conversation now isn't going anywhere near where Pilate anticipated it would. 
He probably thought Jesus would just begin to say, no, I'm not the king of the Jews. I don't even know what in the world I'm doing here. They're going to kill me, these guys. And just like all the other prisoners that they meet, he met. And here's a, a, a majesty. And Pilate answers in verse 35, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? In other words, I'm a Roman. I'm no Jew. I, do, I don't have the time to keep up with the affairs of the Jews. I don't have the, the uh, charges that they're making against you. I only know what they've told me about you. Your own nation has turned on you. What have you done? What are you guilty of? Again, he's annoyed at what he's being drawn into the middle of doesn't make sense to him. And Jesus responded in verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And Jesus plainly declares himself to be the king of a kingdom. But it's a kingdom that is in this world. But it's not of this world. And it's a kingdom that is established in advance, not by force, but by truth. A spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom that would be any physical threat to Rome. And it's as if Jesus was saying, Pilate, you ask me what I'm guilty of. That's what I'm guilty of. Of being a king. Over a great spiritual kingdom. And that's what you're in the middle of this morning, my friend. And when I'm crucified, know that it will be for that reason and for no other. For being a king over this great and heavenly kingdom. Pilate, again, this is a guy that talked with all kinds of different people. And this conversation is having an impact upon him. And I love the scene in verse 37 where he then says to Jesus, are you a king then? And now all the irritation is gone. And now there's a, a, a hint of awe, a little bit of, of respect and softness and curiosity that is, is entering into Pilate here. And Jesus' answer there in verse 37, you say rightly that I am a king for this cause I was born and for this cause I've come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So again, he affirms that he's a king, but this his kingdom is not concerned about swords, but with the truth. And everyone on the side of truth, Jesus said, will listen to him. In other words, people are won into his kingdom, not through force, but through conviction and persuasion based upon the truth. And at the subject of truth, verse 38, Pilate declares, what is truth? And he turns on his heel and he goes back outside to the Jewish religious leaders. And he pronounces his verdict concerning Jesus to them. And he confessed that he found no fault in Jesus at all. I find no fault in him at all. Again, on the morning of 
our Savior's crucifixion, he endured two trials, one religious and one secular. And I ask myself, why the trials? Why did God allow the trials? Why would he allow his son to go through the humiliation of those two trials? I understand the cross. I understand the necessity of the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. As I look at the scene, I don't understand the necessity of the trials. Why the trials? What is a trial? A trial is essentially an examination. And I'm convinced that God allowed the trials in order to give both Jew and Gentile, both religious and secular man, a chance to examine Jesus in order to find some fault in him, some opportunity to find some uncover some spot or blemish in him, something that would disqualify him and his claims to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is fascinating in Exodus chapter 12 in the Old Testament concerning the very feast of Passover that each family was to choose out a lamb from among their flock. That lamb was to be without spot and it was to be without blemish. And they would then take that lamb and separate it from the rest of the flock, tie it up probably somewhere near the front door of the house, and they would separate that lamb on the tenth day of the month of Passover. But the lamb would not be executed or the lamb would not be sacrificed until the fourteenth day. And I ask myself, why the four days? Why tie the lamb up near the front door and hold it there for four days and then wait that span of time to then sacrifice the animals? Why the four days in between? And it was for the purpose of examination. In order that as the family would come in and out and in and out and in and out and in and out of that home as a family does out of their home. And pass by that lamb and see that lamb in the morning. See the lamb at noon. See the lamb at night. See it from every angle. That day after day after day, there was the opportunity to find some spot, some blemish, some manner of disqualification in that animal to be the Passover lamb for them and for their family. And what is fascinating in all of this as it relates to Pilate is that when you go through the entire account, as we will in the next couple of weeks, Pilate goes in and out and in and out and in and out and in and out over and over and over again, passing by Jesus, the Lamb of God that he has on trial. That is why heaven was silent in the face of these trials the Lord was giving mankind all of the time necessary to examine Jesus for any sin. And that is why Jesus so readily submitted to those trials. Jew and Gentile, 
the, being given ample opportunity to examine Jesus to see if they could find any spot or blemish or failure or flaw or sin. What was the conclusion of these trials, of these examinations? We've already seen the conclusion that Annas, the high priest, came to as he was brought before Jesus was brought before him. They questioned him about his teaching. And Jesus said, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where Jews always meet and in secret. I've said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? And Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? And Jesus challenged that entire room of religious people that if he had spoken evil, to bear witness to it. And what was the response of the room? Total silence. It was Annas' job to find a fault or a sin in Jesus. His entire religious and economic empire hangs in the balance of finding some sin in Jesus. I mean, you think about, put yourself in Annas' place, how desperately he wanted to just find one sin, one spot, one flaw, one blemish that he could grab a hold of in order to justify his rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. But the Lamb of God has silenced him. And he could not break that silence with even one accusation. And his silence was a confession that he had found Jesus to be without spot. And without blemish, Jesus was then taken there to stand before Caiaphas, Annas' son-in-law, who was then the high priest, before the whole Jewish Sanhedrin. And we're told that as he was brought before the chief priests and the councils, all of them sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they found none. Silenced again, their examination of Jesus also found him without fault. In this vein, I think of Judas Iscariot and his betrayal of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. As all of this is unfolding, he goes back to the high priest with the 30 pieces of silver that he betrayed Jesus for, and he threw them on the ground, and he declared to those same Jewish religious leaders, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. If there was ever a man in human history who would have grabbed onto any sin or any failure in Jesus' life as a justification for his betrayal of him, it would have been Judas. But Judas watched him day and night in public, in private, three and a half years. All that he spoke, all that he did, what he said, what he didn't say in every environment. And when push came to shove and he was forced 
to speak publicly about what this man was like. He came even himself on the side. I have sinned by betraying completely innocent blood. He declared never once did he see Jesus as anything less than without spot, without blemish, and without fault. We think of the 39 stripes that Jesus endured on the morning of his crucifixion. The scourging at the hand of the Roman soldiers ordered by Pilate. That scourging that was laid upon the prisoner, it, it served two purposes. One purpose was in order to solicit punishment upon the criminal. But the second purpose was to produce a confession of wrongdoing or sin on the part of the criminal. So that as the person was being scourged with those whips, that if they had committed any other crime, that they would then confess to that crime in order to bring to an end the horror of that scourging. And the Bible is very careful to tell us that Jesus endured the entirety of all 39 of those stripes because he had no sin to confess in order to bring that scourging to a halt. And I think of Jesus before Pilate, as we have seen here. Pilate goes out again to the Jews and he said to them, I find no fault in him at all. But that's just the beginning of the day for Pilate. Later in this same trial, the same examination, he will declare to those same religious leaders, and indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent him back to him, and indeed nothing worthy of death has been done by him. Still later, Pilate will go out to the Jewish religious leaders and say, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know I find no fault in him. And then they, he brought Jesus out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And therefore the chief priests and the officers saw him, and they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, You take and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Four times that morning he will make that confession of Jesus. And Pilate, we're told further, when he brought Jesus out and he saw he wasn't going to prevail before this crowd of religious Jews, but rather that a riot was beginning to rise. He took water and he washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this righteous man. You see to it. And then finally, Pilate questions the religious crowd on that day. And he said, what then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? And the response of the crowd is no answer. They couldn't answer Pilate's question. I think of the thief on the cross and his testimony to Jesus as Jesus was crucified between two thieves. And one of them began to blaspheme Jesus. While on the cross, you're the Christ, 
If you are, save yourself and us. And the other thief spoke up and he rebuked him. And he said, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? We're being crucified justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, tomorrow you will be with me or today you will be with me in paradise. I think of an earlier time in Jesus's ministry. When the Jewish religious leaders tried to trap him. With his words publicly as he was teaching. Because they wanted to find some accusation against him worthy of death. And he confounds all of their attempts. And then he closes the conversation with them, this very public conversation. He said, but because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. And then he posed the question, which of you convicts me of sin? And I love it in the Living Bible. Which of you can truthfully accuse me of one single sin? And in that public setting, the response of that religious crowd was complete silence. You put yourself in that crowd and you think about how they would have given their right arm to a man to break that silence to take some sin of Jesus, some flaw, some wrongdoing and throw it in his face and humiliate him in front of the entire crowd. And they cannot break that silence. No one can ever break the silence that always follows that question. Because he is the Lamb of God without spot, without blemish, without sin, without flaw. And then Jesus followed that question, and none of us knows how long he allowed that silence to sit upon them and upon that crowd. But he broke the silence, and only he can break that silence with another question when he said to them, And if I tell the truth, then why do you not believe me? And at the end of all of these examinations... Every person was forced to declare, I find no fault in him. Why? Because he is the Lamb of God, sent into the world without spot, without blemish, without sin, to save us not from the bondage of Egypt, but to save us from the greater bondage of sin, its penalty its power and one day of its very presence. But I tell you this morning, I can only add my voice to Pilate's conclusion concerning Christ. I have known him for 30 years. I have walked with him for 30 years, I find no fault in him. 
He has been with me on the mountaintop. He's been with me in the valley. He's been with me everywhere in between. My life has tested his promises. My life has tested his nature and who he is as much as I know for how my life to do that. And after 30 years of examining him in as close a personal relationship as I know to have with God, I confess I find no fault in this man. And I know that what I confess concerning him is confessed by most of you in this room and millions of people all around this world and untold millions of people through human history where every kind, every version of humanity, every complex difference, the broad diversity of mankind in every circumstance that we can find ourselves in this fallen world, our lives putting Him and His Word, His nature, who He is, to the test of all that He said about Himself to be, and all of them, He lives up to it, and not only lives up to it, but lives up to it and does more, leaving us in awe. I find no fault in Him. If I died in this pulpit right now, I couldn't die under better circumstances than my final witness to him to be, I find no fault in this man. He has exceeded everything that I needed him to be and expected him to be. And I know he's done the same for you. He passed the trials, the examinations conducted not only by Jew and Gentile 2,000 years ago on the morning of his crucifixion. But the test and the trials and the examinations of millions and millions and millions and millions and untold millions of lives since. Why? Because He is the Lamb of God come into the world to take away our sin. If you sit here this morning and you have not yet trusted in Christ as your Savior, you need to understand something. You are free to reject him. And I say this out of love. You are free to reject Christ. God gives you that freedom. But what you must understand is that if you spend this entire life rejecting him, that one day you will stand before him. And at that moment in time, you will need to give a reason for your rejection of Christ as your Savior. In other words, the day is coming when you will stand before Christ himself and he will ask you, what fault have you found in me? Which of you convicts me of sin? And I tell you that just as that 
question of Jesus was responded to by silence 2,000 years ago and has been ever since, that if you ever find yourself standing before Christ and he poses that question, you will not be able to break that silence by giving him any reason at all, legitimate or otherwise, for your rejection of him. And you will then be cast into eternal judgment, unable to break that silence. It's so important to realize that if I'm going to reject him, I must reject him for good reason. But then to realize that the Bible teaches and history teaches that there is no good reason. And since one day, if you were to stand before Christ and he were to say, which of you convicts me of sin and you were not to break that silence, that he would then pose the second question. And that is, why then did you not believe in me? And then it's too late to be saved. But today it's not too late to be saved. I will leave this place today and I will go home and I will have a lunch and I will come back if the Lord tarries and in his will and we'll have an evening service. And I will continue to live out my life. That's that's what I'm going to end up doing. But for you, if you haven't trusted in Christ yet, it's not religion, it's not just a book. It's not just nice people gathering together in a room and God making good people better. It's not that. It's you are a sinner in need of a Savior. God sent a Savior with peerless qualifications. And you need to believe in that Savior today so that if you ever do stand before Him in judgment rather than facing Him as your Lord and your Savior that none of that blood is on my hands. I warn you, that is in your future, if you do not trust in Christ in this lifetime, you have a right to know that. You have a right to know that. And then now you have a responsibility associated with that and what you do with that. And knowing what we do know of Jesus from the scriptures, from changed lives all through history, and what we do know of his assessment of each one of us, we're all sinners. Then the prudent thing is this morning to say, if I were to die this afternoon and stand before him, I couldn't break that silence. So I better get saved and put my faith And the Savior that God has sent into the world to save people like me. And there are going to be men and women up in front immediately after this service. They're going to have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you to begin a personal relationship with God as you personally put your faith in Christ today for the forgiveness of sins. And then they'll give you a Bible and some literature to help you get started in your walk with the Lord. I beg you, please, I beg you, if you don't know Christ today, I beg you by the Spirit of God that you don't leave this place unsaved, but that you take advantage of God's offer today and enter into 
the life that he has purchased for you and the precious blood of his son. Let's stand together and we'll pray.